Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend Flag Taylor for another discussion in the Middle Brow series, where we reflect on culture and society through the movies. Our theme for today is the movie Never Let Me Go, which came out in 2010, adapted from the novel by British novelist Kazuo Ishiguro, who has recently been awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Flag, you taught this in a course on dystopias and have introduced American college kids to what is a deep, moving, and also frightening dystopia. Please tell me about the course, novel, and movie. Sure. Well, thanks for having me back again. It's always enjoyable to have these talks. Yeah, so this semester at Skidmore College, I taught a course on the politics of dystopia, and we read five novels. Darkness at Noon, 1984, Brave New World, That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. And then the last novel we read was Never Let Me Go. And it was quite successful and interesting. I think the students responded to it quite nicely. I think it goes especially well with Brave New World, which presents genetic engineering and cloning in explicitly negative light. I wouldn't say that Ishiguro's novel nor the movie is pro-cloning, but I think it makes the case against cloning in a very interesting way. I think sort of shockingly for the students, it presents the case for the humanity of clones and shows them to be quite normal in lots of ways. They are attached to one another romantically, they have hopes and dreams for the future, yeah, this is also unusual as a novel because, like the C.S. Lewis story, it's a very mundane view of the world. It is not a world transformed by the world state, as Brave New World is, or in its own version, the world state at war in 1984. It's set in the past, if anything. It's a Britain that in the mid-20th century has discovered new technological powers in medicine that greatly increase lifespan. As as the end of the 20th century comes, people routinely live over a hundred years, but they need organs. And so cloning is introduced simply to service human beings who do not wish to die. And the story set in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, over the 20 or so years of sentience, self-awareness of a very small group of children, and then one young man and two women. Partly it's the fact, I think, that we start with children and their education and move on to adolescence and their love and their tragedies that make the movie and the novel so affecting instead of portraying a world system, an abstract version of mankind. Yeah, that's right. And I would even add to that both the film and the novel. Unless you had heard it before, obviously you might know that deals with cloning. But it is not made at all obvious that these people whom you meet are clones. There are references to donation, but that is never defined until later in the book and later in the film. Kathy, at the very beginning of the film and the novel, calls herself a carer. But again, nowhere early on are these terms defined. So I don't think the viewer of the film is quite sure, quite certain, who these people are and what is different about them. Initially, they're portrayed, as you said, very ordinary children with ordinary anxieties and, and hopes and problems. And in this sense, it reminded me of 1984, that initially you were given the what, but the how and the why is not explained until the very last third of the novel or the film. Both Ishiguro and Romanek are careful in how we learn exactly who these clones are and what they're for. 
And in a way, I pointed this out to my students, we as readers or watchers are put in the same position as the clones themselves. As Kathy says, she repeats the words of one of the guardians, Miss Lucy, who objects to the way these students are treated and educated. Miss Lucy says, you are told and not told what you are. So it's this mixture of purposeful withholding of information and partial revealing of information. And that's how the clones come to know who and what they are. And I think that's also, as viewers, how we come to know. And so in that aspect, it's very well-crafted. Yeah, it shows a certain astuteness about psychology. We are not only drawn into the drama, but we are made to experience this uncertainty about the fate and the character of these children. And we are meant not only to share their puzzlement and bewilderment, but to confront then also their resignation. We are passive simply because we're the audience. You read along or watch the movie, there's nothing you can do about it. But they are also supposedly actors and they are nevertheless resigned to their fate. We are intended to sympathize with creatures that are essentially passive, who have no active consent in their own lives, and that's supposed to be to an extent heartbreaking and to an extent revealing about the dangers we face. I mean that in two ways. First of all, you would think that the surprise of the story or the novel just withers. It goes away once you know they were clones all along. But it does not. In fact, when watching it a second time, it's more heartbreaking. Knowing that these children do not know quite what they're going through and seeing how they deal with it, more and more of their actions make sense as haphazard attempts to guess at destiny and deal with the particular kind of mortality they were fated for. That's quite an achievement in both writing and in the movie. But there is another thing the story achieves, a rare confrontation with technology. I've been recently writing on The Right Stuff by way of an obituary, now that Tom Wolfe has passed. That is his story about man's confrontation with technology. Manly men, not children, of course. But it shows again this temptation to turn, in this case, incredibly daring fighter pilots into lab rats, subjects of testing. The story Tom Wolfe tells is rich with explanations of the attitude involved there and how the pilots in that case successfully rebelled. It is a view of America and of modern life that allows for an understanding of nature as giving us rights to live in some way fitting with human dignity. Whereas in Never Let Me Go, there is no such alternative. It is from the beginning foreclosed and it makes it hard to bear and to think about. There is nothing these children can do. No way to assert their own human dignity in face of the fate dispensed to them. This is one thing, too, that was puzzling to my students. They have next to no freedom at Hailsham, the boarding school, where they begin their lives. And they stay there until they're about 16 years old. After Hailsham, they are then transported to a place called the Cottages, which is a refitted old farm where there's lots of freedom. They can come and go as they... They're at the Cottages for about two years. And then when they're 20 or 21, that's when they're put to use. And they can either begin their organ donations, and those that do not become carers, meaning they work with the clones who have started to undergo donations. There are all sorts of psychological side effects to that that carer clones are meant to deal with. 
You wouldn't want naturally born people serving as carers, one would think, because then those carers might develop attachments and sympathies and see that these people were human. And so I think we can see that the British government has been quite crafty in thinking about how to manage this program. The novel, the film takes place in these three stages. Now, my question to you that was prompted by your comments, my students were of the opinion, well, why don't the clones just run away? Why don't they try to rebel? The movie handles that in an interesting way when they come in and out of buildings to have these wristbands that they scan. It's like if you go to Disney World, you have the same kind of <laughs> wristband yes. to get on a ride or something. That's a bad comparison, right? Disney World. <laughs> That's the only thing I could think of in the novel. There's no allusion to any tracking, any system that would prevent them from running away or rebelling. And so I think what the novel tries to suggest, this education has been so successful, it has somehow made these people resigned to their purpose in life. And so my students were of varying opinions whether this seems plausible or not. Could you really stamp out someone's instinct to flee death? My thinking on that is that if you imagine that these students have no familial connections, right, we know that they are sterile, they're kept completely closed off from the outside world. They're introduced very gradually to the idea that their purpose is to donate. This is all that they know. I think Ishiguro does a pretty good job of suggesting that they really wouldn't even think for a moment about rebelling. Yeah, um, there's a lot in the movie that is on the one hand a commentary on our society as it actually unfolds, and on the other hand a commentary on the psychology that sets up a grand conflict between life and science. These are children who are taken over before they get to form any idea of the natural world. They are scared about dangers looming beyond the fence, they live incredibly circumscribed lives. They are imprisoned, but they do not know exactly that they are imprisoned. The question there is, what is the difference between shelter and the cage? It is only in the intention. But that intention is ultimately mysterious in a way that recalls, of course, Plato's Republic, where Socrates says that the shepherd does what he does for the good of the sheep. And the sophist Thrasymachus, an advocate of tyranny, says, yeah, right up until the slaughter. <laughs> Which is, of course, true. Both the shepherd does have to act for the good of the sheep, even taking risks himself, and it is nevertheless true that he wants to slaughter the sheep eventually. That's the paradox reproduced as political education at Hailsham, this unique school, where the children are scared but at the same time protected, and all their dark passions are punished by group instincts, such as the young boy Tommy, who starts screaming in anger, his only ineffectual revolt at the life of indoctrination. And on the other hand, those dark passions are corralled into fear that makes them embrace their captors. This education ultimately has to do with whether science can really replace nature in ordering life. These are children, as you said, who cannot have families of their own and who have no families to begin with who do not know what a parent might be and who have no impressions of the world that an animal might have in wilderness. They have been brought up from the earliest age to conform, and conformity is second nature to them. This is where the social commentary comes in, as you pointed out. We do live in a world where we are more and more used to being tracked, to being surveilled, to obeying authority through technological means, through indirect control. 
It is not just the wristband at a Disney World or a concert or a club. It's the logins everywhere. It's the connecting accounts just as much as it is any RFID tracker one would have in a school dorm or a job or anywhere else. We really do consent to all these things and we really are obedient in ways that we don't quite understand or really think through. We do live in more and more prearranged ways where instead of agreement and deliberation about how to arrange things, we have abstract institutions decide such things as who can get close to a school and how to enter a school where one's own child is being educated and so on and so forth. We do consent to all these things. We really are in all sorts of ways obedient because we're not really users of the system. We're just playing along with it. We neither know how it functions nor have any idea what to do if it should stop functioning. In certain ways, we are as scared as those children who have only dark fantasies and stories about the world beyond the fences. Hence our own horror stories about what should happen in case of an asteroid, in case of monsters, in case of any threat to an order whose fragility and goodness are questionable, but certainly worrisome. Yeah, the whole film, I think, is quite faithful to the book, but there's one kind of dissident guardian the teachers at the school are called guardians. There are no sense parents. There's no indication that they develop deep attachments to any of these kids. But one dissident guardian, Lucy, is upset about the extent to which the students are not privy to the full picture of who and what they are. And so at one point she makes a speech and tells them that none of them will grow up to become actors and that none of them will grow up to be able to embrace any of the dreams that they have. And she tells them quite baldly what's going to happen. And at the beginning, you think, this is sort of cruel. I can't believe she says this. And then you come around and say to yourself, well, at least she's being honest with them. But then later, the film suggests maybe it was better to withhold this information from them. So I think the film handles this ambiguity quite well, that we as viewers are not quite certain what the humane thing would be in terms of explaining to these students who and what they are. Yes, you're right. This is the first instance in the story where you see just how terrible the conflict is and that there is no good solution here. There are certain boundaries which, if they are overstepped, destroy any ethical calculation. There is no longer any way to reason about what is better and what is worse because the humanity of the children is itself in question. How to break the news to them that they're little better than animals and in some ways worse is not a question that admits ultimately of a reasonable answer. It only prepares this agonizing over what is there to do. These are human beings, but they are not treated as human beings. Why is being human so powerless? It's such a strange thing to experience. We have no sense of the political scientific system that creates these clones and exploits them, but we do see fully the weak, fragile humanity of these clones who have no way of asserting their own dignity, much less of acting in a political way to have others recognize their humanity. There will be no civil rights struggle here. And later we learn that Hailsham was a kind of rogue experiment 
the people who founded Hailsham were backed by big corporate donors who were interested in helping these people prove that the clones had souls, prove their humanity. And so the implication is that other places where the clones are raised are really not much more than factories, that they're only concerned with building these people up so that they have healthy bodies. And so my late friend Peter Lawler compared these places to how agribusiness chickens would be treated, right? Really horrifying conditions, all geared to fattening up the clones, preparing them for their bodily purpose. Of course, what's different about Hailsham then is that these students are allowed to produce art they're given a strange kind of education that is not geared to preparing them for a profession, but it is geared toward making them, I don't know, self-conscious in a way about their humanity and about their relation to one another. So they are made to read literature, they're made to produce art, and so it's a limited liberal education in a way. This is all handled much more, I think, dramatically and interestingly in the novel. I think the film nods to it a little bit this notion of this special school, this Hailsham place devoted to this strange education, which is at odds with itself in a more dramatic way. Yes, in a sense, the more you think about that, the more you realize how unbearable the situation is. And in a way, it makes sense that the movie tried to tone that down to make the tone of the movie more religious and less agonistic. The musical score of the movie was intended to play every heartstring it could about love and hope to counteract the gloom, the brutality of this exploitation that's really worse than slavery. And of course, as you said, our friend Peter Lawler wrote a number of essays on this movie that are all very well apt to show in what ways we are close to that society. And this is something that's maybe underdone in the movie because of its insistence on a sort of limited liberal education where the imagination, moral and intellectual, is stirred by education, by play acting, by drama, by the arts, which is part of Ishiguro's and Romanek's awareness of how limited the arts really are. They cannot transform the world, they can only appeal to people's moral intuitions to try to flesh that out and add some emotions to the ideas. And so this education fails in a certain way, just like the novel fails to do anything, so to speak. It cannot have an effect in the world. But it's supposed to at least stir conversations, like our conversation, like Peter's essays, which were very good at showing that our own thinking about the purposes of education is quite muddled, in as much as we hope to make productive students through education, we are not really concerned with their humanity. They're supposed to fend for themselves, and with less and less clear ideas and fewer and fewer options in a society that seems to work by itself. We can't prepare students for the future because we don't know what the future will be. But in a sense, we don't try to prepare students for the future because we don't really believe we can affect it. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. are in certain ways trapped. We experience not progress, but a sort of change that we are helpless to predict or prevent or guide. And we are abandoning children to a situation where they will not be free citizens deliberating, fully human and aware of the full human dignity of other people. We have a kind of silent agreement that technology must destroy jobs. And that perhaps even by the standards of productivity, if you're a productive worker, you're a dignified being, we will remove dignity from perhaps a majority of people. 
our insistence on education is in certain ways as atrocious as that at Hailsham. If in reverse, we're sort of telling people that only the ones with higher education can have any success and therefore any future. So we are in certain ways creating a servitude in the name of science that denies the dignity of human life. Now we are not monsters like the monster system depicted in Never Let Me Go, but the plausibility of the depiction and especially of course on screen where you see the images of people and their doings and goings on depends very much on social criticism, on our ability to recognize that these are social facts that we really are living not only through obedience but through a certain sense that not all of us are going to have a future and that some will serve the happiness of others in a class conflict that cannot be justified. Right. And the other way that this comes out, this question about who and what the clones are and whether or not human beings in our lives are educated towards meaning and happiness and fulfillment in a kind of deep sense and the way that we don't face those questions anymore. I think that's dealt with through this question of love and sex in the book. And here the contrast, again, with Brave New World is quite interesting, right? In Brave New World, you have these kind of religious orgies People are encouraged to have as much sex with as many different partners as they can. The characters in Brave New World, like Lenina and Bernard and others who are instinctively kind of rebelling against that, they are looked down on by the other people in the book. Here at Hailsham, the students get conflicting messages about sex. They know that they can't reproduce, they're not capable of it but they're not quite sure whether they're supposed to have sex or not. One of the characters thinks that they should because to the extent that they have lots of sex, that'll somehow make their body healthier and their organs better. Others think that they should avoid it because of disease. So in contrast to Brave New World, at Hailsham, they're given no clear teaching about how they're supposed to deal with these longings that they have. And once they get to the cottages, there's even more freedom. And so they're left to kind of do whatever they want. And then here we get into the central plot of the novel, which is really just a love story. We're made to see pretty quickly that Tommy and the main character, Kathy, the woman who tells the story, have this deep connection. But for sort of accidental reasons, Tommy and Ruth are a couple. Ruth sort of knows that Tommy is a better fit for Kathy and that that's the couple that should really be, but she selfishly keeps Tommy to herself. And so this love triangle is the thing that drives the plot forward. And I think the film handles this beautifully. It's heartbreaking. I think Kira Knightley, who plays Ruth, does a wonderful job in her role. I agree. This, again, is supposed to show how comparable this future is to our own lives. Even these human beings who know how short their lives are have no way of making them count because their eroticism is so confused. Tommy knows he doesn't love Ruth but instead loves Kathy. Kathy knows she loves Tommy, and she suspects that Ruth, in fact, does not really love him, but there is nothing they feel they can really do about it. And, of course, that's because their own desires are no sufficient guide. In a sense, the only person who believes in love as a guide is Ruth. It's a strange case. Ruth means mercy. It's the name of a Jewish heroine from the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, but this one, of course, is ruthless, or so it seems for the most part. She's a young girl who sees love in others and wants it so badly for herself that she tries to steal it and behaves cruelly. 
but she's the only one who believes that love could really guide you. Tommy and Kathy don't, which is why they don't act on their love for each other. And that shows that they're aware of something that Ruth is not aware of, which is that they have no future. You can't mm -hmm. love people when you don't really have a future. Let me add a detail to support your view of Ruth. Ruth is very interested in finding her possible. They refer to their possible, the people from whom they were cloned. And so they get word from some of their friends at the cottages that the Norfolk, they stumbled upon someone whom they think might have been Ruth's possible. And Ruth immediately wants to go see this person and maybe talk to them, but that's even a little unclear. And of course, they go to Norfolk and they discover that this woman who works in this office doesn't really look that much like Ruth. And it's a painful discovery. And Ruth, she's just crushed by this, I think. And immediately she says, well, it doesn't matter anyway. I never was that serious about it. We're all cloned from junkies and whores and terrible people anyway. So this was a stupid idea in the first place. And so that's a very painful moment. But I think it shows that Ruth, in a way, wants to rebel against her purpose, maybe more than the other characters. That hadn't really occurred to me until you mentioned it. Yes. And she's looking for her original precisely because she wants to believe at some level that she's made in the image of somebody worthy. She wants to be a creature in the image of a creator that's worthwhile, that could function as a parent, as some kind of origin at any rate. And that is what's disappointed in her, and that again is a comment on our society where the truth about loneliness or individualism, as you see it in the new generation of superhero movies, is that everyone is an orphan. This is underappreciated, if not downright ignored, but you see it in this character, and Ishiguro is uncannily accurate about this matter, that the yearning desire to be the creature of a creator who loves you is the thing that drives the self-loathing of Ruth. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, Tommy discovers he's a bit of an artist, and Kathy discovers that in her love for other people, she can ameliorate their suffering, presumably because she has a suffering of her own, just like Tommy's art is an expression of his idealism, a negative form that corresponds to the previous negative form of his fury. The child was also a rejection of his condition. His art is explicitly an attempt to prove that he's a worthy human being with a soul that can express itself artistically and therefore an attempt to beat mortality explicitly by earning a deferral from this harvesting, this horror. But of course it refers to the human desire to escape mortality through works of art. Like Ozymandias says in Percy Shelley's sonnet, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Great works of art last through the ages and earn man a kind of spurious immortality. Ruth is looking for another kind of immortality that's closer to looking for immortality through God, through a creator whose creatures we are. It's somewhat submerged in the novel, but it is there and it emerges in these incredibly passionate outbursts. You know, by the end, Ruth gives this great gift to Tommy and Kathy. Kathy becomes Ruth's carer. She learns through a friend that Ruth has had her first donation. So Kathy is a valuable carer. The bureaucracy has kind of recognized this. So she has some leeway to choose her patients. So she ends up becoming Ruth's carer. And Ruth apologizes to Kathy and says, you and Tommy should be together. 
that's another of Ruth's donations, right? Interestingly, by the end, of she gives something to Kathy and Tommy that she had been unwilling to give to them for a long time. So it's a very touching moment. Yeah, it has a lot of the power of Kathy's own self-sacrificial attitude in love, but it adds a certain willingness to confess guilt. Mm-hmm which is nowhere else seen in the story, which again suggests that this is of more importance with respect to religion, which is otherwise absent in the story, than might first seem. I think our friend Peter suggested that Kathy is actually a philosopher. She's a caregiver because she has resigned herself, or so she thinks, to her own mortality. She knows that there's nothing out there. You die and the nothingness swallows you, but life is short anyway. She has a stoic wisdom, she knows that the people who exploit their bodies are just as miserable, essentially, and in certain ways more miserable, because of their injustices and cruelties which have no chance of working out. And, of course, the name Kathy, Catherine, comes from purity, Cathar, and suggests her own peculiar makeup. She's the only intellectual, she's the one who reflects and therefore tells the story. That's her role in this picture, and she allows Ishiguro to show one more version of immortality, self-reflection or contemplation or thinking about the things that simply are. Right, and you alluded to this crucial plot point, this idea that at first, Miss Lucy tries to deal with Tommy's anger by saying, well, you don't have to become a good artist. It doesn't matter. Unlike all the other guardians, Miss Lucy tells Tommy, don't worry about it if you can't draw. It's not a big deal. And so he doesn't. But then eventually he comes around to drawing, as you said, and becomes quite a gifted artist. And Tommy embraces this rumor that the reason why the students at Hailsham were made to produce art was so that if two people claimed that they were in love and therefore were entitled to apply for a deferral, meaning a postponement uh, when they would begin their donation, you could go to this archive and pull out the art that was produced by these two people and compare it. And somehow that would enable you to judge whether their love for one another was real. And I think the film does a wonderful job of, on the one hand, making this sound plausible from the standpoint of the clones. On the other, suggesting that this isn't that plausible if you start to think it through. I would be curious to know whether you think Kathy ever really thinks this rumor could possibly be true. I myself think that Kath is too smart. She has to know at some level that this rumor is a little crazy and there's no way that it's a possibility. Yeah, I completely agree. This is where the movie operates a very clear separation between the good and the beautiful. Kathy has an experience of how the system works. She takes a certain crazy pride in helping people die exploited without being miserable, but she doesn't believe any of the lies she must tell them to make their way better. There's a brief conversation between her and the nurse who lets her know about Ruth's fate. She has started donating and she's probably going to die soon because she wants to complete and people who want to do and Kathy takes Ruth's case. And that suggests that she understands that when once the brutal fact of the exploitation and of mortality hits them, people would just prefer to die. They give up. Mm-hmm. They need some kind of beautiful lie to go on, to die with some dignity. 
Well, and even Tommy takes some pride. I think he makes at least four donations. So he thinks he's, I don't know, a good clone. He's... He wants to be part of some greater good in this crazy idea because it's no good to him. He is being exploited and he wants to find some way to consent to it because it beats the despair of black nothingness. Cathy mm-hmm. seems to be aware of that and to play along with his fantasy. Now, the argument he makes that you can find out who really loves each other, that you could solve the confusion of eroticism through art, is both crazy and not crazy. The suggestion is that the human soul can express itself and come to a test. You could prove who it is that you really love in a practical way that is available to others as well. There's some part of the human mystery that you could solve. Now, this would not abolish mortality, but it would make it more bearable. Mm-hmm. This would seem to be part of the purpose of art, to offer people self-understanding. Of course, if it were the case that his argument from art is simply crazy, we should not be able to understand really anything from Kazuo Ishiguro's novel. It is supposed to reveal certain things about human beings. It doesn't work at the personal individual level, however. It works more through types, through symbols, through ideas and sentiments. It is not a source of personal immortality. No piece of art can show you the soul of the artist. It cannot preserve it in any serious way. It can only preserve something of a general or even universal character. Mm-hmm. As human as such in as much as we have access to it. And that's not life. It is an alternative to science, however. If science were not really and utterly tyrannic and destructive of human dignity, it would have to be counteracted in its worst tendencies by something, and that something would turn out to be poetry. Right. Poetry is closer to human beings, not personally, but as human types, as social situations, as opinions and ideas and mannerisms and turns of mind. And it is able to speak to the heart in the way that science cannot. Right. So there's something to be said for his argument, but of course it turns out to have no purchase, no power against the obvious power of science. It tells more of the truth about being human, because unlike science it doesn't reduce humanity to body parts. But it's a part of the truth about being human that doesn't really have power. It can't change things by itself in the way in which scientific, technological devices can change things, have power. Right, yeah, and I think ultimately the teaching of the film and the novel is is really just how easy it is for us, for modern societies to accommodate themselves to the kind of horrific side effects um, that result from the advancement of um, a certain kind of scientific understanding of the human of a human body, um, both from, I, I think, the people um, kind of on whom the experimentation depends, you could say the victims, for lack of a better term, and from the side of the people who benefit. Um, that's an easier case to make. I, I'm in, neither in the film nor in the in the novel are you, you know, are you given speeches from the people who are proponents of it um, because I think the case, you know, is pretty obvious as, as it's put in the, um, this is, this is where the film, I think, um, cut some things short. It, there's a, there are speeches when they go to Madame's flat and Miss Emily is there and she's explaining 
the purpose of Hailsham and how it was different from all these other schools and how they hoped to prove that the children had souls and all of this. Ultimately, she says, well, it's, it failed because who would be willing to go back to a world where cancer killed people, right, at age 50 and 55 and, and people are subject to the vagaries of, of disease, that it's impossible to sell people on the idea that they should go back to this pre um, pre scientific pre technological advanced world where people died of, of disease and natural causes at uh, at sixty no matter what you prove about the humanity of of the clones once people are pretty to the benefits there is no going back and um, uh, and I think that's the kind of the darkest teaching of the of the film that um, once we go down this road, um, it's going to be very hard to to recover our, our humanity um, in the face of in the face of the wonders and the um, and the benefits that people experience. Yeah, I think that's ultimately also why the story is told from the point of view of the clones, whose tragic humanity is so much on display. Partly to tell us what Kazuo Ishiguro really thinks about our situation. We really are stuck in the dark abyss, but partly to show us that that knowledge that leads people to turn into a certain kind of monster, better to exploit others to death in full knowledge than to face that dark abyss ourselves. Mm -hmm. The real saving of lives, somebody needs organs, there are always people needing organs. What would you be willing to do to produce those organs? It's, as you said, very dark because it's realistic. It's something that could really happen, perhaps not today, perhaps not in America, but it's a living possibility because we don't have a good grasp on how human dignity should teach us to conduct our affairs and whether it would really guide us when our own lives were threatened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are weaknesses that we're really not good at facing and that are absent from our public discourse, even as science advances. It is for lack of any understanding of human dignity that we can believe in that we end up with this sort of situation. And much greater artists than Kazuo Ishiguro have concluded the same. The great American poet T.S. Eliot, who became British when he realized that there was no power left in poetry, famously said that we want systems so perfect that nobody has to be good anymore. There will be a power that stands in between us and the inevitable, but it will come at the price of our own ability to act and to accept suffering and the finality of death, which is also, of course, what C.S. Lewis had in mind. That is the hideous strength that guides us to an anti-human tyranny. Mm -hmm. If we face up to how terrible it is to be lonely and die, would we really stop at anything? Yeah, I think that's right, and that's why the it makes a good the novel makes a good companion piece to Brave New World and and that hideous strength because it poses the same same problem of thinking about the human being in terms of this um, unique whole that is both body and soul, and it's incredibly difficult to um, to try to separate them. And, and there's a danger in, in trying to separate the human being in these two, into these two parts that can somehow be, be separated. Um, 
I mean, this is certainly what Lewis thought, and this theme has been picked up, I think, beautifully in the essays of of Leon Cass, that uh, human, the human mind and consciousness is most itself when it can um, kind of come out of itself and express itself as pure consciousness and manipulate bodies. Um, and in that hideous strength, um, you know, Lewis, even he, he has the, the proponents of advancement speak in terms of um, the final advance being the, the pure separation of mind and consciousness from body, that body is always birth and death and bodies are always ugly and material to be, to be overcome. And, uh, and so I, I guess I would say that I think um, what's interesting about Ishiguro and, and, the, and Romanek's film is that it makes the case for the dangers of that, but I think in a much more subtle, more moderate way than either Brave New World or That Hideous Strength. It sort of shows you that this could happen um, in a much more normal atmosphere, that there wouldn't need to be, as you said before, a world state, some you know, crazy, tyrannical system that, that runs everything, but that it might happen in a much more piecemeal, um, as I said, moderate, slow way, um, that in a way it's, it's more insidious and, and um, you know, even, even a kind of darker, darker vision that, you know, if you don't, if you don't pay attention, um, this is something that could, could really happen when you're not looking. Yeah, Whereas, it's not um, because yeah. we will choose to do some terrifying evil, it's because we'll abandon responsibility. Yeah. We'll tell ourselves we are fated, that things are happening without our choices, and thus abandon our humanity in advance. Right. Of course, what you're alluding to, the alternative, would be transhumanism. Minds that work without bodies and that can download themselves into cold machines that do not feel pain or fear death. And the writer of the script, Alex Garland, dealt with that in Ex Machina and in his new movie Annihilation. Both of them preambles to utopia or dystopia about the very disturbing possibilities of artificial intelligence and evolution, respectively, or how science threatens life, in short. Yeah, and so Garland wrote the screenplay for Never Let Me Go, and then as the director of Ex Machina, is that right? Yes, he, yeah. he wrote and directed afterwards, and these are all very thoughtful stories that are worth investigation, and hopefully we can we teach more college kids about them. We can yeah. deal with these things as stories before they become realities, which many of them threaten to do in our lifetime. Biotechnology or artificial intelligence are not part of a distant future, they seem to be or are threatened to be ongoing prospects. Yes, well, Flag, thanks for joining me. This has been a enlightening, if not particularly upbeat story <laughs> and discussion, and we should do more of this. The novel, the movie, they all reflect very well on a situation we're already confronting to an extent, and they help our imagination conceive of our society as it really is, without encouraging us to ignore what's happening because we can't choose anyway. We're a passive audience, but also active human beings, fully in thinking of ourselves as able to choose and to effect change, to be human, not merely prisoners. Yeah, that's well said. That's... So next time we'll have to choose something more upbeat, though. <laughs> yes, let's try. <laughs> All the best, Flag. All right, thanks time. a lot, Judas. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.
Ladies and gentlemen, this is the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I hope you enjoy our conversations and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. Give us a rating and a review. It helps share our conversations with a broader audience. And indeed, we always appreciate it if you can share our podcasts on social media. Until next time.